Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. It's interesting for people who come in thinking they're going to be playing real-life Call of Duty, and then they come and they train, and they spend the vast majority of their adult life training and waiting. The Halo Neurostimulation System will help you to push boundaries and to perform at your maximum capacity. Now, I'm often testing new products here at Unbeatable Mind, and Halo is the most recent that I've tested. And I felt it absolutely needed to be passed on to the tribe. It's a neurostim device that electrically stimulates the movement centers in your brain. It helps you to move better and faster through neuroplastic adaptation. It's as simple to use as downloading an app and plugging in headphones and then sticking them on your head. Use it for 20 minutes and then you go do your movement or your workout. Now Halo, the company, has graciously offered to give a discount to Unbeatable Mind listeners. If you go to haloneuro.com and at checkout use the code UNBEATABLEMIND125, which will give you $125 off a Halo Sport model. That's an unbelievable offer. So use UNBEATABLEMIND125 at haloneuro.com, H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com to get $125 off. Very generous offer that they put together. Hope you check it out. Hoo ya. Hey, welcome back, folks. This is Mark Devine, Unbeal Mind podcast, coming at you from the Unbeal Mind Summit, Carlsbad, California. Got my good friend Andy Stump here today. Um, let me read you a little bio of Andy. I'm going to skip the usual pleasantries and plugs today. Uh, so, Andy, a uh, teammate of mine, spent 17 years as a Navy SEAL. I want to figure out why you didn't do 20, by the way. Medical retirement. Oh, boom. There you go. Answer that one pretty quick. Served on SEAL Teams 5, 6, and three, my old alma mater, um, five bronze stars, purple heart, and a PUC. Not a lot of people know what that is. Presidential unit citation. That's pretty cool. Um, and also, uh, you know, on the side, he set the world record, base jump, or actually uh, wingsuit flying. Jumped from 36,500 feet and flew 18 miles in your Batman suit. Indeed. Holy shit. Okay, that sounds pretty cool. I want to be you someday. Uh, Cleared Hot Podcast, that's new. Mm -hmm. Look forward to talking about that and all the cool things you're doing, including now living in Montana. That is the coolest of the cool things I'm doing, is living in Montana. So it's good to see you again, Andy. Yeah, good to see you too. Thanks for being here. I'm going to toss my notes because we're going to chit-chat. We're going to go like that? All right. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Time to go live. Cleared Hot. Yep. (laughs) That's probably why you named it Cleared Hot. I know there's a pretty a much one of my here. favorite. Uh, for people who don't know what it is, it uh, I would say most people have unbelievable, unrealistic expectations of what it's like to serve in the military. Uh, no doubt, about all that. based around things that they see on a screen, ranging from the size of an iPhone to a movie theater. Mm. 
And all of those things, which I'll probably bring up in the talk I have today, are wildly inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And they think that things are constantly blowing up and bullets are whizzing by your head, and that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. And to actually get an airplane to release ordnance, it's actually a very choreographed, I would almost say, symphony back and forth of communicating. And then you finally get to the point where you're going to drop something that goes boom, and the last call out from the JTAC is cleared hot. Cleared hot. And you just hope you're far enough away. Yeah, but it's. Yeah. I, mean, I really like what happens after you say cleared hot. So that's yeah, why that's I called it that, because things get a little exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't happen to sustain your injury on a cleared hot incident, did you? Uh, no, I did not. We were in a urban setting at the time, and it's not a good idea to drop large bombs in an urban setting. Yeah, yeah. lots of bad shit can happen. Yeah. For sure. Well, let's talk about, uh, just so folks who don't know you, which is probably one or two out there, um, how did you get into the SEAL teams? What was your early life like? Common question. Not that you're still not in your early life, yeah. of course. You know. No, I'll be dead I'm probably earlier than you, uh, <laughs> just given my choice of hobbies. But, uh, you know, so people, I'm not very open with the fact that I used to be a SEAL. I tried to tra- trade on it quite lightly. Yeah. Most people... Uh, you know, 0.05% of the U.S. population is currently serving right now in the military. I think the peak service in the United States was 6% in the middle mm-hmm. of the draft in the mm-hmm. deuce. So most people haven't encountered somebody who's in the military. Uh, and when they find out that you were in the military and then they find out again that you were in the SEAL teams, the most common question I get is, how did you know or why did you choose that route? Mm-hmm. And I actually don't or have do a- you know? X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Another one. Do you know Bob? It's yeah. like, oh yeah, Bob's a great guy. I just start. I just start saying yes because <laughs> I, they think everybody's name is Bob or Steve or Frank, and they're five foot eight to five foot ten, two hundred and five pounds to one eight. It's like, yep, I know him, great dude, exactly. and just move on. It's easier that way. But people will ask me why did I want to be a SEAL or why did I go that route, and I don't have a great answer for it. I remember that I heard about the SEAL teams from my father who served in Vietnam. He was in the first squadron of patrol boats, the Mark 1s. No kidding. Yeah. So, so he was early on the SWIC. Early. Brownwater Navy. I don't even think they were calling it SWIC at that time. No, Brownwater for sure. Yeah. But it, the stories Riverine he has. Something. Or Coastal Patrol Unit or something yeah. strange like that. So the stories he has about the Mark 1s and the first uh, squadron of boats, the one out with the jacuzzi jet engines, as you know, the mm-hmm. Mark 5s or yeah. what they're, whatever they're on now crazy propulsion systems while they were working out the kinks. So he's got some crazy stories about, of course, working out the kinks in moments where you wouldn't want to work out the kinks. But he worked with and alongside of the first SEAL teams, you know, taking them to where it is they were going to go. So he was in Vietnam. He was in Vietnam. And I remember him bringing up the SEALs. And I don't remember necessarily the context that he brought it up, but I remember when it was brought up, it seemed very interesting and intriguing to me. And I don't know if that's because of the the difficulty mm-hmm. in making it through mm-hmm. training or the exclusivity or. I remember the guys when I, when I read and talked to some of my, um, we had some Vietnam vets when I was at SEAL Team 3 still, mm-hmm. you know, some legacy guys. My platoon chief, Mike Martin, was a Vietnam yep. vet. And all, not all, but the, the Navy guys in particular had great respect for the SEALs. The mm-hmm. Army guys weren't so sure. You know, because the the seals were pretty um, well. We were treading independent on, minded. We were treading that. on their territory as well. Right, exactly. I mean, you got to remember up until the in, you know the creation of the seal teams in '62, the high water line was as far as the UDT could go. Right. So beyond that, it was the Marine Corps and the Army. That right. was their business. That's their turf. Yeah. So he he brought it up to me, and I remember it just kind of created this insatiable desire to find out more. So in the early '90s and late '80s, that's that's the library, mm-hmm. a concept mm-hmm. I struggle to impart on younger people now that you can actually go and find books and mm-hmm. don't find it on your phone. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> the books I could find 
were the classic Men with Green Faces. Right. Oh, totally. Classic. And, love that one. And then Gene Wentz. Yeah. And then Rogue Warrior. Oh, yeah. Which I uh, thought at the time was a nonfiction book. I didn't realize until later that that actually <laughs> yeah. was not the case. You mean all the guys don't bench press 500 oh, pounds? Oh, God, with their shirts off in the snow. I still remember that passage. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I was young and impressionable when I read that book. I'm like, well, I need to work on my beard and my bench press. All right, here we go. Boom. And then it just, it never, for whatever reason, somewhere in there, it hooked me. And I didn't, like I said, I don't know if it was the exclusive nature of it. I don't know if it was the fact that, Everybody loves to throw stats at you and say, hey, look, here's your odds. You're never going to make it. Yeah, yeah. Because that is definitely a way to motivate Super me. Super inspiring. I mean, I had a very yeah. similar feeling. You know, that was what I was going for. You tell me I can't do it, I want to do it. You know? that, if one person yeah. has done it, even if one hasn't done it, yeah. you know, let's go. It's a good way to get me to try to do stuff is to go down that route. And yeah. so my mom came from an army brat, or she was an army brat. Her mother and father were in the army. Uh, father on the logistical side of the house, mother on the uh, nursing side of the house. My dad was in the Navy. Obviously, his dad was in the Navy. And I would say probably their biggest concern was that I would want to join the military. So at 17, I brought home a piece of paper saying, hey, this is my enlistment form. I need you guys to sign because I'm a minor. Mm -hmm. And you know, to their credit, they never stood in my way and did everything they could to support me, sign the piece of paper. I joined a year before I graduated high school, which <laughs> – I still laugh at this. All I did was fill the quota for the recruiter that month. I sure. still, You still have to be 18 and sign on your own. So I did a great job for the recruiter that month, waited until I turned 18, <laughs> three days after high school. So like I, had, I went through all this effort to have my parents yeah. sign the paperwork. And it and really it, was just to get the – It really get was. you bought in and Correct. get them their number. So yeah. I graduated, turned 18, signed, and three days later <laughs> So you off. couldn't sh – can you ship off as a 17-year-old now? I wonder. I bet you can, but you have to complete the education requirements. It's going to be GED yeah. or high school diploma yeah, yeah, yeah. because you still have to have that. I just wasn't in a place to have that stuff done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so then you went, you know, did Buds, what Buds class? 212. 212. Okay. And then, then just on from there. I made it through, you know, I didn't realize, you know, there's the attrition rate, the number of people who actually quit. I didn't realize the number of people who get hurt yeah, or get rolled yeah, back. Right. I had no plan B which at the time was great because I didn't really have anything else to think about other than being there. But then when I went back as an instructor, I really got to see, you know, there are two, there's two sides of that coin. There are the people who shouldn't be there because they just don't have they're not prepared. Whatever, or they don't have the mental toughness right. or the the resiliency or they're just not the right person to do it. And then there are the people there who are great, but for whatever reason can't meet the physical standard or they have an unfortunate incident and they get injured and they can't make it through. So to make it through on your first time, there's a lot of luck involved in that as well too. Mm -hmm. Just you know, not getting a boat dropped on your neck mm -hmm. or having wet fingers and falling off the slide for life and breaking your pelvis. I watched a student do that right in front of me as a second phase instructor and, you know, great guy, but I can't, I can't do anything for you. Right. Exactly. Shit happens. Huh? Yeah. So just continued through, fortunately made it through, went to team five, did two pre 9-11 platoons there, uh, right at the end of that second platoon, obviously 9-11 happened mm -hmm. and the, the structure of, I would say the world that we live in, but really the operational aspect of the SEAL teams drastically changed. Mm -hmm. I went out to the East Coast, did my time there, and then came back and <coughs> finished off at Team 3 after a Bud's instructor tour in between. Yeah. You know, most people don't have an appreciation for what a dramatic shift that was yep. in the whole evolution of the SEALs. You know, I, I mean, we yeah. truly were frogmen. Yeah. We spent a lot of time in, on, under the water, and we still do, to be fair. I would but, say we spend you know, enough, or I should say, I would say the people who are active duty spend enough time underwater to be current. Yeah. 
And that's about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which surprises a lot of people. Uh, not except for the uh, you know, the STV guys and you know, the subscribers. Well, those guys, that's their bread and butter. That's their bread and butter, right. But right now the world isn't challenging, with, challenging yeah. us with things that are very riverine or maritime right. based. Right. I think we'll get back there someday, you know. But you know, we had the, the fast attack vehicles at SEAL Team 3. Remember those are the cast me out when we wanted to drive the little things? Oh, the, uh, the, the DPVs? Fa- yeah, the DPVs. Oh, yeah. They were called FAVs. Yeah. And then they changed the name to DPV. Those things seem like and suicidal race cars they, to me. They're basically a big doom buggy with yeah. guns on it, which is super cool. Highly ineffective in that environment. They were okay for the first, you know, invasion yeah. or incursion, you know, to skim across the dunes, but uh, they quickly realized that, you know, that wasn't going to work. And most people don't realize that the SEALs never, we never used a Humvee. I never saw a Humvee unless I went up to Camp Pendleton until, not, you know, until 9-11 kicked off and we went into Afghanistan. We're like, mm-hmm. how the hell are we going to get around <laughs> You know, we need to become a mobility force on land. I don't think most people realize that at 9-11 or at the moment 9-11 occurred, we were still relying on Vietnam-based tactics. Absolutely. And we patrolled everywhere when I was at Team 3. We would would helicopter in and do whatever, land, and then we'd, you know, hump like 20 clicks to the target. It was classy. We'd clear the target and blow up the radar tower. Yeah. You know, none of that stuff is practical these days. Well, we're not blowing up radar towers because we got, you know, high precision musicians to do that. Well, and look at the gear we were using. You know, everything was based off of, you know, even in the late 90s, jungle boots and everything was based off of drainage out of the water. All of the camouflage patterns were based off of, I wouldn't say tiger stripe, but they were more of a jungle type terrain. All of this stuff was based around that. Yeah. Yeah. How many times did you practice urban warfare, urban combat pre 9-11? Zero. Not once. No. You'd have okay. a little structure, a one-room structure. A little structure. CQB, yeah. yeah. And, and then, we sucked at it. I mean, we, we did it so infrequently that yeah. we, you know, it was just total chaos and confusion. And the, and the MVGs, you know, I put those on and I just see like yeah. green. Like <laughs> maybe a little shadow in the corner. Like I took them off and I don't. It was a different world. And I try to be honest with people. Like that's, I just try to be honest with people to dispel the misconceptions. But I would say post 9-11 for the first one to two years, the SEAL teams were successful, but we struggled yeah, no with yeah. getting up to speed with what exactly we were being challenged with. Mm-hmm. But you also have to look at it from the perspective of after Vietnam, you know, there was a couple guys who did a little bit of stuff. And then the rest of the force generationally had done nothing but practice and not be challenged in the real world. Mm-hmm. So it uh, it was a paradigm shift for sure in, in a lot of different ways. And man, it was rough. Mm-hmm. So did you go to Afghanistan with Team 5? No, I did uh, all but one of my combat deployments when I was on the East Coast. I had already okay. gone through selection and training. And then the first trip I did over there was a short augment of the Karzai detail, the security okay. detail. Okay, yeah. And so Dev grew. can we say that? Uh, sure. Surprise okay. you. Surprise me. I don't know. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> I'm going to be very selective. Got it. <laughs> so you went to DevGrew out of Team 5 after two tours. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was pretty common. I remember uh, a bunch of guys over three selecting that was on my radar. I went to SDV1 instead, um, and that's a whole different story. Yeah. <laughs> this is about you, not me. So talk about a little bit about Green Team. Uh, what's the training like? Because a lot of people have this misconception, and a lot of people, I get the question all the time. It's like, hey, you know, there's SEAL Team 6, which are the super, you know, mm-hmm. they're like the really good SEALs. Yeah, which and they're then not. There's the other, and I'm like, yeah. no, 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 it's not like that. There's a special, there's a specialized group, just like SDVs, a specialized group. There's specialized training that you have to go through. And of course, if you're not qualified for that training, you're not going to make it. Yeah. So, so that's Green Team. Green Team, or what they call now selection and training. The difference between becoming a SEAL and then getting to become an operator at development group, when you go through BUDS, they are... It's a selection process. They're trying to weed people out, right? We're looking for people who are 
you know, I'm talking today about resilience, right? So they're looking for people who are resilient. They're looking for people who are physically capable of doing it. And you're really being tested on your mental toughness right. for buds. Right. When you go to- Not so, your tactical proficiency. No, you don't know anything. And that's, when I talk to people about buds, you know, explain it to them. It's basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training. The emphasis is on the B. Right. You don't know anything at the end of buds. Right. If you do know anything, it's just barely enough that you're a danger to yourself and everybody else around you. Right. But it's a selection. When you go to- with the exception, by the way, of the large number of former Marines and even Army Special Forces, there's a large, it's interesting, I've seen a growing number of former, former mill vets and combat vets going through BUDS. They do know something, yep. but they have to unwind the conditioning of Correct. the how they were taught. And You're better tactics. to go there as a, a blank slate. I think so too, yeah. So the jump between, or the, not the jump, the difference between bud selection and development group selection is when you go through selection and development group, you're being tested at your capacity to operate as a SEAL. Right. So it's no longer, hey, we're going to run you and put a log on your head yeah. and try to get we people to quit. That, right? They know they can do that. So then it's, it's much more refined. They test your tactical proficiency and your knowledge. Okay, you can shoot great. Can you shoot in this environment? And you... I mean, the vast majority of their job is based around doing direct action. So you spend the vast majority of your time training for that. And that, to me, is the difference between the conventional SEAL teams and the JSOC units in general. The JSOC units have the time, the funding, the assets, and the ability to focus specifically on a narrower mission set. So they are much more capable at that mission set, whereas Mm -hmm. the SEAL teams, you know, they have that three-ring binder of their medals, all those things that they're supposed to be able to do. And you have to train to proficiency at all of those things. And when you become the jack of all trades, you're going to be lucky to be 70% competent at any one of those things. So, Dev Drew, you're a jack of all trades and a master of one. And that one is... You don't even have to really be a jack of all trades. You Mm -hmm. can really use... I mean, you spend your time... Shoot, but everyone's still got to still know how to jump and dive and all For that sure. kind of stuff. You know? uh, but all of that is based around getting you to the X. Correct. So you, you become very good at those things. But then again, all the training dives right back in. Right. Whereas it, I found at a conventional team, when they do jump training, they just jump and then they go home for the day. Yeah. It's not jump into the kill house and then do fill in the blank, right, which right. is the, the step that those commands with more budgets not more budgets, with an increased budget and increased assets, they have the ability to right. do those and that's things. And that's a really good point. So when you're at a conventional SEAL team, you're kind of a self-supporting unit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do have a lot of support from the outside, but generally you rely on your own supply, your own guys. Mm-hmm. And there's SEAL team guys who are in those, you know, collateral duties, at least back when I was in. Yeah. I know it's changed a little bit now, but at Dev Group, you have this massive support structure. And you can go to DevGrew as a Marine. I mean, I, I've, had, I've met tons of people say, yeah, I worked at DevGrew. I'm like, were you a, a team guy? They're like, no. The support I was an Air Force there. guy. Yeah. Like, really? So I think the stats, I might be off one or two, but at a conventional SEAL team, you're going to get about a four to one support ratio, mm-hmm. meaning people who are in ancillary departments that are there to support. They're all yeah. warfighters in my mind. Supply, parachute yeah. loft, that kind of thing. All of the encodes, and when you get to the JSOC level, it's all the J codes. It's They're there to support the direct warfighter, even though they have a critical role in allowing that person to do their job. So maybe a four to one, maybe it maxes out at a five to one. At a JSOC command, that's probably going to bump to a 15 to a 20 to one. Good Lord. Yeah. This podcast is supported by Ample. The Ample meals aren't just protein shakes. They're complete meals, including fiber, healthy fats, as well as protein. I love Ample and I try to have at least one a day in the morning. Now life's crazy and this makes eating healthy on the go so much easier. I consider it the new MRE, meal ready to eat. 
Just add water. You can get a 400 or a 600 calorie complete meal in a bottle made from superior real food ingredients designed for optimal nutrition. It's non-GMO, no artificial crap, no gluten, no soy. Now, my friends at Ample are offering a 15% discount off your first order if you're interested in checking it out. Go to amplemeal.com and use the code UNBEATABLE15. UNBEATABLE15. Ample knows how much I love this product, and I want you to try it too. So go to amplemeal.com, use the code UNBEATABLE15 to get a discount on your order. Check it out. It's great stuff. So how many people assigned to a JSOC command? And when we're talking about that, primarily we're talking about dev or CAG, right? Yeah. To be honest with you, I don't even know anymore. Yeah. I, since I was there and left, I have been told that the sizes have increased dramatically. An assault squadron, I mean, 50 to 60 operators is a complete wild-ass guess on my part. And then, you know, like I said, 15 to 20x that support. Just for a squadron. Well, I mean, if you if you aggregate it all in, so the number of squadrons take the that support's people. covering all the squadrons, though, right? Some some of the support is directly attached. No kidding. Yeah. Okay, and do the squadrons have a specialization? I know that one of them does, black, and then there's the boat, right? Brown, uh, gray, gray. To a degree, yes. They're the assault squadrons. And again, this is me talking a little bit out of school because I'm a little bit detached from this. Yeah, sure. In my opinion, the assault squadrons probably all have a very similar capability. Then they will start creating other squadrons that have a different non-direct action specific role, and they will focus on those things. So there can be differences, but in the ones that have the same yeah. j- job the, description. The pure direct action ones are all yeah, similar. I'd say they're all similar. And, but they have different um, character traits or attitudes Kind of like the I SEAL Team 5 have a d- different attitude than Not SEAL really. Team 3. You know, and yeah. I found, uh, I mean, I found personally that those independent attitudes existed much more pre-9-11 than post. Okay. It was a much more, this is my rice bowl. I'm not going to tell you anything. Like, look at why I started. It's almost like the, the saying, yeah. hey, you were you an East Coast SEAL or West Coast SEAL? That really was a Vietnam era thing. And it, but when it I lingered in, until the, high, the late, late 80s, I think. When I got in and went to Team 5, they issued us, you know, woodland camis. And right. the only people who were getting desert ones were Team Three, right. you know, and you couldn't get a Team Three dude to give you a pair of desert camis because we don't do the desert, blah blah blah. <laughs> so that crap it definitely existed, right? Because in, in the absence of an enemy, of course, you have to fight your friends. Right. So that's what we did. We in fought, and I and I get asked a lot too. You know, is there a a rift between you know SF and SEALs or Rangers and SEALs? Yeah. And it, no, no, I've worked, not, but yeah. pre nine eleven for sure because. Yeah. We were all untested. Yeah. Well, but we were all untested too. So we were all basing it off of what happened in the past, this legacy skill sets and operations. And yeah, that didn't work well when we actually got thrown into the sandbox and we found that we all talked a different language and we all mm-hmm. wore a different uniform and we all brought different gear because everybody had their own color. You know, the yeah. Marines were red and the Army was green and we were blue and the red and green were like, what the hell is blue doing here? We're not in the water. Mm-hmm. I would say now in the modern day, it's very gray across all of the forces and inside of the SEAL teams. It's mm-hmm. just, I, I think you realize at some point in time, there's no time for that crap. Yeah, I agree. I'm imagining that the Bronze Stars are classified missions. Is nope. there any, anything you can talk about there? Most notable, most interesting? 
Uh, you know, I don't put a whole lot of weight into military awards. I think yeah. that the military award system is completely broken. It's a little corrupt, yeah. It's well, it's based off, and unfortunately, it's tied to the advancement system right. now. Right. And the threshold That's what I meant by corrupt. I don't yeah. think anyone's paying for awards, but yeah. I do think that they're given out a little bit too. It's tied for the wrong reasons to the wrong yeah. people. It's tied, unfortunately, point. a lot of the times to rank instead of actions taken. Right. Each service has a different threshold for what an award signifies or what you have to do to put a V on a device in the Marine Corps is different than the V on a device in the Army. And different. And v means valor. Right? V means valor or the award was given for an action taken in combat. Again, there's a different definition depending on what service that you're in. The criteria to achieve thresholds for awards has shifted over time. I think it was a little bit looser early on and it's a little bit tighter, a little bit tighter now. And, you know, and as far as those awards, at the end of the day, you know, it's probably a 15-cent piece of metal and a 5-cent piece of ribbon. I really don't care about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, most of them were for, you know. An, so you didn't get off an op, off an op and be like, yeah, I think that was a bronze star op with a V. <laughs> no, no. I would have hoped that if I ever said that, somebody that I was working with would punch me directly in the mouth. <laughs> it just never, it never, I, I don't care. It's, you can have all the military awards in the world and still be a piece of shit. Yeah, so to me, they're very meaningless. It, it signifies something that happened in the past, something that was, you know, could be considered important depending and, on what you circle you go into. Job. Yeah, yeah I don't happened. care. Yeah. yeah, right. Totally. Were you in uh, when we nailed bin Laden? Or were you I not? was in the military uh, because that was actually in May of 2011, but I got out in uh, 2013. I had left the command by that time. I got a notice of about two hours heads up before it was released nationally that right. that had happened. Yeah. And uh, did you know O'Neill and Bissonette and those guys? On mm-hmm. the out? Okay. I know uh, Bissonette a little bit better than O'Neill. I think I've met O'Neill a few times passingly. But again, I had already left at that Can time. Can we out Bissonette here? Does anyone not know that Mark Owen has met Bissonette? I think he took – I think – I mean, he's already – last I heard, he's got to pay back a substantial sum of money to the government. I, I think the dots have been connected on that. So, I mean, I, I mean, passingly – know those guys but no operational experience with them whatsoever so yeah. i can say yes i would recognize them if i was in a room but but beyond that what do you think about the whole um controversy that they mostly bisnet kind of stirred up with the publication of the book and yeah the seal team's knee-jerk reaction the entire military's knee-jerk reaction to that what bugs me about the bisnet thing is how many other people were impacted because of what he chose to do right I've, and we're talking about the publication of No Easy Day. No Easy so. Day, which he was out at the time. And again, I believe he's been told he's going to be paying back millions of dollars for the publication of that book. But at the time, and for a couple of years, they weren't able to do anything about what had happened. But what it did inside of the military is it swung a spotlight on anybody that was doing, you know, how many guys did you know who had part-time jobs on the side? Time. A ton, especially yeah. on shore duty. And a lot of people who had involvement in stuff outside of their pure military job got in a lot of trouble. Well, that, that caught a couple of my SEAL fit coaches. Correct. You know, guys who were working down at the command or whatever. Group and one. so now that happened, though, because it's not because they couldn't get a hold of BIS, but the scrutiny of what he did exposed, and I, I say exposed in air quotes, because let's be honest, most of the chain of command knew what those people were doing. Right. But the higher Navy, like you said, the knee jerk, it, the metrodome or the needle swung from so far left to right or right to left that anybody doing anything outside of having a special request shit in basically Swept got in. crushed. Right. And I know quite a few guys who had their careers basically 
ended because of that. They were forced retired. And mm-hmm. I'm talking E8s and E9s that were really? told, hey, you, you know, you can finish out your enlistment, but we're done with you after that. And this that. is because they were doing something on the outside that all of a sudden they- They were, were doing something that was on the concept. outside and they also had a, a connection with Bissonette himself on oh, a no project. Kidding. And because- was that they, the video game yes. primarily? Yeah. And I actually was approached to be a part of that uh, video game and I couldn't do it because of the scheduling conflict. But if I but had- But there was nothing in your mind that said, hey, that's wrong? Well, it was pitched to me as something- is one thing, and what the people who captured the footage ended up doing with it was not what the pitch was. Is that right? Okay. So a lot of these people, if not all of them, got rolled in thinking that they were going to do one thing, and then the final product. So they were was taking else. live footage of operations. Absolutely not. It was all captured on GoPros. All that stuff okay. was a green filter on a GoPro. Interesting. In, a, in, in an empty building, but it doesn't really matter at that point because yeah. that's what it looks like, and that's yeah. what it was portrayed as. And it was SEAL Team Six this, SEAL Team Six that, and those guys got absolutely crushed. And yeah. this was the project manager for mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. their association with that, uh, it caused a lot of problems. You know, in Did my that video game ever get produced? I think so. I think it was either one of the Call of Duty or Call I Duty. can't keep track of the Call of Duty. I or wonder the, why the, those imagery look so damn real. Because <laughs> it's really it easy to fake. Yeah. No, it's easy, it's easy to fake. I mean, literally, right. you can go and put a night vision filter or a green filter on a GoPro and you can make stuff yeah, in this, ho- this hotel. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You can make it look 100% real, especially to people who have no idea what they're looking at. Right. So to get back to the, my thoughts on the books and the publishing and stuff, the experiences that they wrote about, whether they chose to embellish, whether they chose to lie or they chose to tell the truth, those, that's their choice. I mean, they earned their right to do what they want to with their experiences. I personally would not go down that route, but who am I to say that they can't or they shouldn't? Yeah, it's just not the choice I, I would make. I agree with that in a sense that, you know, let's use men with green faces. You know, I'm sure Gene Wentz, people were gnashing their teeth. Oh, Gene, you know, you're giving up our tactics. But it inspired both you and I, yeah. you know, to get into the freaking Navy and become SEALs and, you know, have a great career. And uh, No Easy Day will inspire another generation of SEALs probably. And so it's... Maybe. Guys have been... You know, my Maybe. point there, my point is that, that warriors have been writing about their exploits for years. And it's, it's both cathartic and it's educational. Yeah. And there is a process to do it accurately. And that's what Bissonnette bypassed. He bypassed the, the process to do it accurately. And then secondarily, he was taking credit when it was really a, a massive team effort. And that was the problem that I think I had. It was like, wait a minute, dude. You know, that's really, you should have donated all your proceeds yep. to the NSW Foundation or something like that. I think that wasn't an, your glory. I think he made an attempt to, but the foundation said no. Is I mean, right? it's, okay. uh, that's kind of like one of those issues where nobody wanted to touch the hot stick. Yeah. You know, you, maybe, maybe people will be inspired to join, but the problem I have with it is, is that when you start embellishing, I mean, go to any bookstore right now and just go find the military history section. There's five shelves of seal books. Yeah. I would say 99.9% of those books are full of complete bullshit. You think so? 100%. See, I, I wasn't even opining on that. I, I, I actually mean, haven't read the book. I, I don't read yeah. those books. Well, Probably he, for that reason. Well, my I issue think is the this. last one I read was Marcinko's. Uh, yeah. Well, my issue is this. Let's say something. you write the most accurate historical book that is inspirational and aspirational. If it goes into that section, how is somebody who knows nothing supposed to know the difference between that and the books that are on each side of it that are completely... They're not fabricated, but they take other people's stories. They try to trade. I mean, most of the people, I can't say most of the people. I know quite a few people who are writing books because they want to pad their bank account, not because they want to inspire people. So they're taking credit for things they were either not there for, that the community made possible, that they had no impact on themselves, and they slap a trident on it. And it's there's no way for a consumer to tell whether or not you're getting 
good information or bad. So if you get inspired by something that is inaccurate, you better stand by to have your hopes and dreams and aspirations crushed when you get to the SEAL teams. And it's not like that. Right. Interesting. This podcast is supported by Qualia, brought to you by the Neurohacker Collective. Qualia is a nootropic, that's a brain supplement essentially, that will help you reach your full potential cognitively. Now, I love this product. I use it every day, and when I run out, I feel like I'm, you know, maybe missing out. When I take the Qualia, I'm able to think more clearly, and I feel more focused and engaged. You know, it really also helps me when I'm tired and overwhelmed get back into my game. I think Qualia is a breakthrough product, and the ingredients are all extremely high quality, and they cover a broad spectrum of neurological capacities. So you're going to have to check it out and research it for yourself, but the best way to do that is to actually try it. And Qualia, the team over there, has offered you a 15% off the price of a monthly subscription. That is awesome. I mean, that is is extremely generous. So if you want to get 15% off and try out Qualia, then go and get a monthly subscription. Just try it out for a couple months using the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R. Don't forget the R. UNBEATABLEMIND15R. And it's sold at their website, neurohacker.com. N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com. Neurohacker.com. Use the code unbeatablemind 15R to get 15% off that monthly subscription. Check it out. I think this stuff is awesome to support your training in developing an unbeatable mind. Hooyah. So what are the SEAL teams like today? Couldn't tell you. <laughs> I know. Good eye. Isn't that funny? I mean, I see a lot of the guy, the young guys come through SEAL Fit, as you yeah. know, and we train train a lot of these guys, and they go off and do their thing. And I, I'll see them like four years later, and they're pretty squared away. Yeah. So I know the training is rock solid. I would um, say everything is like when we were in, but it's better. And I would yeah. say it's probably shifting more back towards a pre nine eleven mentality. Right. Uh, just because currently that you know the two mature theaters of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, Iraq has mostly wound down, even though we never had a point in time where there were no boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Afghanistan is, from my understanding, mostly Army and Marine Corps right now. So it's kind of back to that time period where you're training a lot, you forward deploy, yeah. and you're standing by ready to answer the call that may come out, but it may not come out. Right. Yeah, that was my life on active duty. That was, that was everybody. Hurry 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, that, I've encountered that a lot post 9-11 as well, but it's interesting for people who come in thinking they're going to be playing real life Call of Duty, and then they come and they train, and they spend the vast majority of their adult life training and waiting. Yeah. If you think you're coming in to just be kicking indoors every night, you the, the are. Other, the other thing that's different is, um, and and you know, a lot of listeners are dealing with bringing millennials and Gen Is into their workforce. Sure, I've never Still heard team, Gen I. What's that? Gen, Gen I is like the the new millennial. It's like my son. Yeah. How old's like, your son? He's uh, just turned 18. Okay. So mine's it's like 14. There, Is he not a Gen a, I? Yeah. So okay. Gen I, I think. I mean, I don't, I'm pretty sure that's, yeah. it's not like a meme yet, but a, it's lot, on of its people, way. a lot of people are okay. calling them Gen <laughs> I. And this is the generation that doesn't remember not having an iPhone. Okay. That makes sense. Whereas My son millennials, because sure. yeah, the iPhone was created in 2007. Seven is when Steve Jobs. Yeah, so only a ten-year anniversary. Yeah, so it's about ten years, and so millennials are comfortable with technology. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, so we'll lump those two together. But you know, what I've heard, and 
a lot of the instructors are just, you know, banging their head against the wall because these guys come in with a, just a ton of entitlement mentality and expectations to be, um, you know, coddled or that mm-hmm. they get to do things. They don't have to earn it necessarily. Yeah. That is the privilege that they don't even understand or have the capacity to appreciate of living in the country that we live in right. because they have too much free time on their hands. And the reality is, is that we wake up every single day with more opportunity than the vast percentage of people it on the face of the earth. Unbelievable, isn't it? Like yeah. this country, you and I do a lot of traveling. I know you've been all over the world a hundred times. Wow. I mean, this country has unreal freedom, access, abundance. And, and almost one, nobody and actually uses it. Nobody uses it. And they yeah. sit around wondering where their next you know, handout is and they're yeah. bitch about everything. Well, I think people nuts. confuse freedom with entitlement. They think that they should have things given to them because we're free um, and I'm unique and special because I've been told so my entire life. So why aren't you giving these things to me? Like I said, when you, when you grow up in an environment where you don't actually have to go out and grind for it, how could you possibly appreciate that? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really surprise me to be honest, as much as it hurts me to say that. I mean, in my opinion, the biggest threat to this country is political correctness and safe spaces. Yesterday. Nerfing where, you know what I mean? Yeah, making totally. sure that people don't face adversity, making sure that, you know, people think that they're special in this crazy intellectual bubble mm-hmm. that is going to be destroyed if you ever go outside into the air quote real world or into the business world where you're working with an international organization that right. raised their people to exploit that environment mm-hmm. instead of thinking that's where you should grow up. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, um, I had a, a two guys, you know, two men were giving speeches, you know, mm-hmm. Kirk Parsley and everything. After each speech, you know, give the old team guy handshake and bear hug. Yeah. And then I had Ashley Horner, you know, who's an att- attractive fitness kind of yep. sp- uh, specialist. And after our speech, it was like a cold handshake. Yep. <laughs> we're both like smiled. And I said, you know what? I'm sorry. I can't hug you right now. You know, I'd Not love the to, environment but- for that. But you know how, I mean, yeah, uh, that's, that's a rabbit hole to go down even further. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I... I almost think that the U.S. is getting ready to fall flat on its face, and I am something's coming. Coming to the what. conclusion that we need to mm-hmm. to rediscover and reappreciate who we are and where we came from, and the things mm-hmm. that it takes. If you really want to be a world leader and you want to be a beacon of freedom and the things that you can do, you got to be more graceful. You got to be more graceful, yeah. but you also got to grind for it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, fall down seven times, get up eight. We've been here before. Yep. So I, I, I firmly believe that we can do the, get through this. We spent a lot of time talking about something you said you didn't really like to talk about, and that was your military SEAL career. Sure. Yeah. What's up now? I mean, you you are doing a ton of cool philanthropic work. You're an adventurous guy. Last time we podcast, we talked about your wingsuit jumping. Mm-hmm. Are you still wingsuit jumping? Jumped I noticed yesterday. you donated a jump for Stump. Yep. Thank I you jumped very yesterday. much for the Courage Foundation. Got the suit on three times. Uh, okay. I have no idea what I'm doing right now. I have no idea where I'm going. I'm just taking opportunities as One they day at a time. present themselves. Okay doing a good amount of public speaking. I'm doing a good amount of jumping. So I, I would say I split my time 50% of the year as I'm still doing the sponsorship, professional skydiver and base jumper stuff. Yeah. So do you have a sponsor for that? When you I have a out? variety. Yeah. Okay. You, everything, you know, it's, there's categories as you get a footwear and apparel, you'll get a beverage if you want to go down that route. And it just, you can go so like of, yesterday, were you, were you going out and doing practice jumps or was just it just to be current in the suit? You know, okay. there's, there, and when you do that, do you like uh, get a little image of you getting ready with your sponsor logo on your sometimes, helmet or something like that? Sometimes, you know, with a GoPro, it actually makes it really easy. You can yeah. turn the thing on and let it roll. And then and that just streams to your Facebook page. And I just post it on social media or I'll okay. send it to the sponsor. And, and they you can, handle all 
all this stuff yourself? Yep. Or do you, you I'm don't a team, have a team of one. Team no. one. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm like a little ant over here. I don't, I don't need a team. If I had a team, <laughs> again, punch me in the face, please. Uh, you know, I, about 50% of the year, the jumping stuff, which takes me all over the world. Like I've already got three weeks lined up for next year to make probably a documentary on wingsuit based jumping with a couple ex-military guys to tell, a, I guess, a little bit of the story of what some of the things the guys do next, looking for that next challenge, so that when, next wait, pursuit. Let me just, just clarify for my own mind. Wingsuit base jump, mm -hmm. you're jumping out of a stationary object? It, a base jump is just a static object. A building, an antenna, a span, or earth is what base yeah, stands okay. for. So that's different than jumping out of 36,000. Because there's sure. no objects that's 36,500 no. feet high, I don't think. Nope. I think Everest tops it out at what, the high 20s? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that would, that would be an airplane. Your 18-mile jump was out of an airplane that was moving through the Correct. sky. Correct. Yeah. Okay. It's the only way you're going to achieve that Do you altitude. prefer one over the other? Uh, they're the same but very different. You know, after about four seconds of stepping off of an object, the suit flies about the same. Okay. Uh, that first four seconds, though, is where most people are going to end up meeting their maker. Mm -hmm. I like the aspect of base jumping. I like... I love the jump aspect, but I love everything that goes into it leading up to that. I love hiking through the Swiss or the French Alps oh, yeah. with good friends. I mean, that's and the all stuff. the preparation. I remember you were saying, the yeah, that's the you know, stuff that doesn't make 99 it. 99% preparation yeah. and 1% jump, right? The stuff that doesn't make it onto the YouTube video to me are some of the most enriching aspects of it. Hanging out with your friends, training, figuring out the plan, going hiking. You know, most of the videos, they start about 15 seconds before the jump. Everybody's right. got all their stuff on and then you jump and it ends right after you hit the ground. And then again, that's just the the reloading cycle of everything that took place before. So I would say I prefer... I prefer base jumping, but skydiving is more accessible in the U.S., sure. so I leverage that to stay current and competent in the wingsuit. Mm -hmm. Is there any renowned base jumping place in the United States? Most of the videos I see are like in the Pyrenees. or you know, yeah, The only place where it's legal in the U.S., 365 days a year, is off the Perrine Bridge in Twin Falls, Idaho. Mm. And the city there chose to make it legal, and it's a relatively safe object. And... I think what makes it the safest is you don't have to worry about the legality. So you can go out there and you can talk about it and you can take your time. Sure, you you're don't not have to rushing. Like avoid the Other than that, sheriff, yeah, the, <laughs> the New River Gorge does uh, bridge day every year, I think in October. And they, for one day, will allow people to jump off the New River Gorge. And other than that, in the U.S., I think there's, if you're on BLM land, I'm not sure the legalities of BLM land. I think you're all right as long as you don't do any trespassing or cause any damage to the land itself. Other than that, it's it's not legal, hmm. which is why you see most of the uh, footage from Europe So in where Europe, it is legal. And they're like, yes, please, come on. Okay. One of the more recent videos I saw, though, was a year ago. Um, and you know the location. You probably jumped there many times. It was somewhere in the, in the Alps, but I don't mm -hmm. know if it was French or Austrian. And all these guys were lined up. They're like, it was a big deal. There were oh, 20 like or 30. 30 dudes who jumped off? Yeah, all yeah, different colors. Yeah, I think that colors. was Bravant. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah. let me finish the story because my, my thinking is, wow, this is pretty cool. Look at, they're all in different suits and they're going to jump the same and they're doing one, you know, one after the other. Boom, yeah. boom, 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 boom. And the last guy was filming it, right? So he jumps, boom. And before him, you'd seen the guy in the blue suit jump off. And so now this guy in the black suit is flying down. He's got his GoPro, and, he, and he's cruising through these crevices and everything. And all of a sudden, whew, he flies over the guy with the blue suit. Yeah. And I'm like, wait. And I had to back it up. I'm like, holy shit. That guy didn't make it. It happens. How many? Hard to say. Uh, summertime months, the fatality rate is going to go through the roof. 
just because the accessibility of the terrain is there. The snow level has Got melted it. off so people can get up there. So many more people are participating in the summertime. I don't have a good grasp of how many people wingsuit base jump. It's not the safest activity in the world. <laughs> Imagine that. I heard some crazy stat, you know, like 12 to 15 guys a month were getting killed. I would say maybe a year. A year. I would okay. say it may be a year. That's a relief. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, that's a relief unless there's only 18 guys doing it. You know, it really <laughs> depends on the uh, the number pool and the size True. that you have coming at you. I would say I, – I don't even want to throw a stat out there. I don't know. Yeah. I will say this. Uh, of the fatalities that I'm aware of, almost none, if none of them, were equipment-related. Got it. Yeah. It was all human error. I think, you know, for, for listeners, a lot of people are thinking, hey, that, don't, look, that looks really cool. I want to go try that. And the it is really is, cool, but don't try. Don't it. try that. Yeah. Right. How many jumps do you have? Just over seven thousand. Seven. Okay. So when you get to five thousand, try. Still that. don't try it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just don't do it. Don't do it. I enjoy doing it, but my rule is I'll never teach anybody else how to do it. I'm very comfortable assessing and mitigating risk, but I don't. I don't want to have to take on the responsibility of introducing somebody else to that and worrying about their longevity in the sport. I'm very comfortable with myself. I just don't want that added weight on my shoulders. Yeah, I get that. You just moved to Montana. We did. Beautiful state. Some people say it is. Yeah. To include myself. Yeah. There's lots of opportunity to go out in the wilderness. What do mm -hmm. you love to do out when you're out there on your own? What, what do you do in your downtime? Uh, well, pretty sure I'm going to be spending the rest of my life bow hunting. I just okay. took that up recently. Right. And you want to talk about a challenging endeavor where it's <laughs> not about how many things you can do right. It's about how few you can do wrong. Mm-hmm. And you need to actually like bag an elk or fill in, Yeah, to fill in the blank. I actually did. I got an elk this year, but I had to go to Utah to do it. Uh, my The district we were hunting in in Montana, the weather was not cooperating. There was smoke everywhere. It just was too early. Mm -hmm. That time I had dedicated for it was too early in the season. But it for me, I think I like it because, again, it's something really challenging and it's something that I suck at. And I just want to devote the time. And I also find it to be very cathartic and almost just to wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee and go out and just. It's very Zen-like. Shoot imagine. your bow. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's very, it's structured. It's repetition based. You need to do the same thing every time to get, you know, consistent results. And it also has a lot of aspects into the old job, you know, right. moving back through terrain. Can you right. be quiet? Can you look, you know, manage and monitor the wind, dead space, like all that stuff, terrain study. I mean, to me, it's, it's cool. It, covers a lot of the things that I've done in my life and adds an, another unique aspect to it. Yeah, right. And you always go out alone? No, actually, I would say hunting is an individual team sport. You know, you want to have yeah. more people out there, especially if you bag an elk. My God, yeah, you're calling that you need to have a stuff. speed dial Rolodex. Right. I, Furthermore, if you twist your ankle or oh, do something for stupid. Sure. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah, it's always better to have. I enjoy exper experiencing things with others. Yeah. But the like the elk that I was able to – shot an elk with my bow in Utah and it looked pretty big from the distance that I shot it. And then when I walked up to it, I realized it's not fitting You're in not my backpack. You're not throwing anything over your shoulder. <laughs> oh man. How many people can we call right now? Holy God. It was, it, I mean, that's getting the animal so on the you, ground. Do you take that thing apart or do you bring the back hole? Oh, you take it apart. You I mean, apart, it, that yeah. thing was probably 900 pounds. You're not bringing that thing back hole. Holy shit. It's, all right, hunting game is over. Put all your hunting stuff here. Start getting at all the stuff you need to prepare the meat to hike the meat out, start getting a hold of people. Where are you going to take it to the, like, that's just the beginning of another journey. The <laughs> easy part actually might be getting it on the ground. Right. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. All right. And, uh, so when it comes to your philanthropic work, mm -hmm. are you dedicating, uh, to a particular charity or, or 
I I got your... linked up with the Navy SEAL Foundation right. a couple of years ago, and so everything that I do it just kind of points in that direction. That's a great organization. Yeah, sure. like yeah. I, one of my sponsors you were asking about uh, sponsors is Five Eleven Tactical. Mm-hmm. They do footwear and apparel. And the cool thing the cool thing about working with other brands that I like about the sponsorship game, for lack of a better word, is that it gives you a bigger microphone. So they partnered up and they did a run of jeans. They they wanted to get into the jean category, and they gave a percentage of the sales. Uh, to the SEAL Foundation. So on Memorial Day, they cut a check for 20 grand. Nice. It's a check I wouldn't have been able to cut without that you know, mm-hmm. involvement of a larger brand. And that's, I mean, honestly, like if I, if I was financially independent, I would still jump without any logos. But since I'm not in that position, I try to pair with brands that want to do cool stuff like that. That's yeah. kind of my litmus test. And align test. with your ethos. Correct. Or your, yeah, that's kind of my litmus test for anybody that I'll work with. I turned down far more sponsorship opportunities than I've ever taken. Yeah, right. Well, cool. Yeah. All right. Enough said, huh? You tell um, me. It's your podcast. <laughs> We've been going for a while, and we, we? should probably oh, wow. wrap up. And uh, people can find you on Facebook. Sure. All the social media stuff. It's just, just some version just of my Andy name. Andy Stump? Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I so I, I'm a firm believer that I've never had a unique idea in right. my entire life. Right. You don't I need just, a brand. You are a brand. Well, I took it, I took the yeah. advice of a friend of mine who said, "Hey, make a website." So I bought andystump.com because it answers questions that people answer, you know, ask yeah. me all the time. So that's if you want to find out who I am, then just go right there. And that's then it has all the MPF as in Frank. Not it's not phone book people. It's not PH. God. Andy, thanks so much and appreciate you being here. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for speaking today. Looking forward to that and good luck with everything. Who you are. Indeed. All right, folks. That's it. That's a wrap. Mark Devine, Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thanks for listening. Super appreciate it. And we'll see you next month or next time and next month out here. Lock and load, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UTT. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.